Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, a senior fellow in the Americas program at CSIS and the co-host of the 35 West podcast. Mexican, but government. are we ready? Um, I don't reform think. trends in Argentina, right. and that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Around the world, democratic institutions have come under siege, resulting in a worrying trend of backsliding in democratic states, paralleled by consolidation within authoritarian regimes. Freedom House's latest Freedom in the World Index declined for the fifteenth consecutive year, and found that the amount of losses in global freedom have accelerated in past years. Fewer than one-fifth of the world's people live in fully free countries. As it becomes increasingly evident that autocrats are following a shared playbook and cooperating internationally to ensure one another's continued grip on power, it is of extreme importance that democracies build their own set of shared tactics for promoting civil and political rights, defending electoral integrity, and sustaining rule of law, among other things. This week, we are joined by Dr. Christopher Sabatini, Senior Research Fellow for Latin America, U.S., and the Americas Program at Chatham House, and author of the forthcoming book, Human Rights in a Changing World Order. Chris joins us today to help unpack the dictator's playbook and outline how democracy defenders and advocates can best combat the growing international club of like-minded autocrats and authoritarians. In this episode, we will talk generally, but also focus our attention a bit on Venezuela, as the Maduro regime continues to employ key elements of the dictator's playbook whilst Venezuelan civil society and the opposition continue to strive for a return to democracy and the rule of law. Thank you for joining us today, Chris. Thanks, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be collaborating again, this time in voice rather than in writing. We are recording about five months after the December 2021 Summit for Democracy. The summit was intended to kick off a subsequent year of action to revitalize democracies around the world. Just before the summit, you and I wrote together in foreign policy that it was time for the Biden administration to put into motion an offensive playbook for democracy promotion and protection. What were the tangible goals set forth for the year of action at the Summit for Democracy? What progress has been made, in your opinion, toward any of the objectives that came out of that summit since December? You know, I've racked my brain in preparation for this, thinking about what were the tangible goals that were set forward for that summit, and I I can't remember any of them. I think that's kind of telling. Uh, I think it's telling in the sense that it's sort of how it sort of came about. It was sort of an afterthought, and I think it also reflects, I I would say, the dilution of importance of actual summits. We sort of attach the name to a summit, you know, just to give it a certain amount of importance and gravitas, and it, it, it may not reach that level. I mean, I'm not saying that just because it was virtual, but the summits have to have some sort of meaning. They have to create some form of standards and clubs and honest reflection and coordination for action. And, and the little bit that I was able to glean from what was done and discussed didn't really, it was mostly sort of voluntary action taken by individual countries that would then step forward and report back to each other, which to me is pretty low bar for a summit, I'll be frank. Uh, we can talk about the summit in the Americas too in that context. So I'm, I'm not sure, you know, much was actually accomplished. There's a lot of things that were clearly rolled out when it comes to Latin America that were already in the hopper, an anti-corruption activity, some work on, on civil society, on checks and balances, all very important. But it really would have been, I think, it would have been necessary and important to do two things. One is to have an honest reflection even in the, based on the United States of what the challenges were. Uh, taking, talking about, from either side, the challenges to, to the soft guardrails of democracy in America, 
um, the risks of misinformation, um, how the U.S. can sort of try to overcome these things, um, and sort of an, being, if you will, sort of an honest player in this rather than just a convener. And the second is doing what you and I have written about is starting to say, look, we know how democracies deteriorate in the modern age. It's not primarily through coup d'etats, though still those coups still take place in Myanmar and, and Africa. But the primary way in which democracy is, is if you will, sort of disarticulated, uh, is eroded, is through elected politicians using a popular mandate, oftentimes manipulated, certainly in re-election campaigns, to sort of assert authority and, and crush checks and balances and close down political and civic space. There was no mention of that. There's no talk about what can be done to stop it. There's even no sort of call to order to understand it. So I, I must say I was a little bit disappointed in it, and, and I don't have high expectations for its uh, any follow-up. So having said that, what issues should be on the agenda for the Global Club of Democracies for the remainder of the year? So the first thing is, you know, the, the idea of the Global Club of Democracies is, I think, a misnomer. I, I know why you're saying it. Um, that's the way it was referred to. I'm reminded of the Groucho Marx quote, I'd never want to belong to a club that have me as a member. You know, what he's saying, though, is, is actually that clubs have to have standards. And he would, you know, any club that have him as a member obviously had lowered its standard. These, this club of democracies doesn't really have any standards. Like what, what, what do you have to have to belong to be a card carrying member of the club of democracy? Um, what, you know, at what point does that get revoked? And so we need to sort of establish the standards of that club, whether or not Groucho Marx would have wanted to belong to it is another matter. But that's the first thing. And so I think we need to develop some standards and we need to adhere to them. But we also need to do two things. One is within the club, is be able to establish benefits to membership, um, whether it's you know access for multilateral lending, some form of certification for um, access to private capital markets, whether it's it's you know if you will sort of a if you will sort of a Davos style of democracy. Um, we have a Davos for the the elite and the glitterati. Why don't we have a Davos for democracy that people would want to attend rather than a virtual summit that no one really sort of people chime in and out of? And then what is being done for those countries that are on the collapse or on the cusp rather? of falling out of democracy, out of the club of democracies. And that's what I would like to see uh, is, is standards, benefits, and then also costs for falling out of that and, and clearly define what those costs are. And, and as you and I have written, Ryan, is that we know that this, uh, I don't like the term backsliding because it assumes always that democracy is a certain teleology to it and it's linear. But this, this, the, this idea of, of um, eroding democracies, we know what the benchmarks are for that. And so the question is, is what can be done to arrest those or at least identify them at the very least? Maybe we can't arrest them, but we can identify them and try to call them out. And we haven't done that. Let's take a look at Venezuela in particular. At the moment, it seems the dictator's playbook has been and continues to be employed with devastating effect in terms of keeping the Maduro regime entrenched in power. There is a divided opposition, an economy that appears to be stabilizing, but in fact remains, despite economic reforms, rigged for cronies of the Maduro regime. And now the regime is engaging in what they call judicial reforms that actually strengthen its hand even further. Maduro has pledged to return to the negotiating table with the opposition after the recent visit by U.S. officials. What needs to happen in order to ensure these negotiations progress in a way that meaningfully deconstructs certain aspects of this playbook? So there are two questions in that, Ryan. And the first one is, is one that you know, I was walking recently and, and saw a friend in Regent's Park, and he was 
Um, he's, let's say, a traditional academic in the sense that he, he was willing to give Chavez a pass for a long time, bought into the rhetoric, let's say. And you know, he said to me, how did you know early on that this was going to go south so quickly? And I said, it was obvious. I mean, the, the, we'd actually seen this to a certain extent under Alberto Fujimori. Unfortunately, a lot of leftist academics, while they were willing to call out on Alberto Fujimori early on, refused to do the same with Chavez. But the patterns were exactly the same. You pack the Supreme Court, you pack the CNE, the, the, the Consejo Nacional Electoral, the Electoral Council, you appoint temporary justices, you start to threaten, berate, and eventually close down independent media. These are, you know, well-worn tactics that we'd already seen. They just, we hadn't seen them yet from the left. And a lot of people really bought into this idea that Chavez was sort of a socialist of, of good standing who would sort of abide this and that, that somehow Venezuela deserved his, his medicine. We knew this. So the first is, is we, we know uh, how this happens and we see it even now accelerate in the case of uh, Venezuela, which gets me to this, and, and we've seen it shared, and you and I have written about this in Nicaragua, obviously the same in Hungary. I mean, we've joked about, you're not joked about how, you know, you mentioned sort of academic style conferences with very earnest panels about how you disarticulate an electoral council and how you, you know, steal an election. They don't have those, I don't imagine. If they did, I would hope none of us were invited. But clearly they are learning from each other. And that's important to recognize. And so it's important us to the, then begin to sort of see what's on their playbook. And, and in, in that regard, you know, in the case of, of Venezuela, when we're trying to sort of pull back or negotiate, we then also need to reverse that playbook. So in the case that you asked about Venezuela negotiations, what do we need to do? We need to start to chip away on the things they've already established to consolidate their authority. So at the negotiating table, the first thing, the two first things I would say are judicial independence, and the second is an independent electoral council. And those have to be on the table. Without those, you're basically still playing their, by their playbook. So you have to understand, just, just like with Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots trying to, you know, videotaping and copying the Jets uh, in their practices so they could learn their playbook. Now, of course, there's a simple question here, which is, why would you do that to the New York Jets? Because they're pretty beatable anyway. But anyway, we need to understand what their playbook is, and we need to sort of push back on it. And in this case, we, need, we know it's the CNE, and it's, those are the sort of fundamental pillars for the consolidation. And we want to roll that back, the consolidation of autocracy. We need to establish that. And that needs to be first and foremost on the discussion table. Recently, there's been a push by some to relax sanctions on the Maduro regime with proponents of the idea claiming that they have proven ineffective. You wrote a piece on Chatham House's website about Venezuela sanctions recently. And so I'm wondering, how should the United States and its allies be thinking about sanctions as a tool of leverage and as a broader push toward democracy, protecting human rights and deconstructing the dictator's playbook? Yes. And, you know, like a lot of difficult policy questions, there's there's no easy answer. And so I think the, the a lot of people, because of the they, they look at the, the stasis that exists now in which, you know, the, the maximum pressure of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela haven't yielded any real benefits yet. And they call for the lifting of sanctions. I, I think that's foolhardy as well. We need to be able to, you know, we're in this position. We can argue about whether we should be or not. But the question is now, how do we leverage those to provide real incentives for the Venezuelan government to return to the negotiating table? But not just return to the negotiating, remain at the negotiating table. So any sanctions relief that we consider and propose needs to be tied to two things. One is, again, those sorts of sets of principles that begin to 
chip away at the uh, playbook or sort of interpret and counter the playbook, if you will. And the second is be able to have those sanctions snap back in place if those conditions are not met or if they're reversed, because they can be and we know that. And so this should not be a get out of jail free card. What it should be is a parole with a little ankle bracelet. So we know where you're going and you can be snapped back in the previous situation if those uh, rules and conditions are violated. And so I do think there needs to be a way to get out of this, but I do think we have an advantage here to be able to leverage them, but we have to do it around principles. There's one thing, you know, you've been nice enough to mention things I've written before, but I did write a piece in Foreign Affairs a long time ago uh, countering the Unisor, which no longer exists, and for good reason, I can add, I'm speaking of clubs that have no standards, is this idea that, you know, discussion and dialogue is just important in and of itself. It's not. I would actually say it's pernicious. If it doesn't, if it isn't organized around principles, then dialogue is actually a very dangerous thing because it perpetuates this idea that things are moving forward. And it, you know, it's sort of a Chamberlain-esque sort of way of understanding how power is, is exercised. And, and, you know, we know... Uh, in that, in the article, we know what makes for successful negotiations. And there's negotiations that are based around fundamental international rights and standards and norms. And that has to be, and this is going back, in fact, I cited a number of studies that seem to have gotten forgotten, unfortunately, that talk specifically about those successful cases and why they're successful. And that's it. It has to be based on, on those norms. And that piece, just for our listeners, I believe is called Meaningless Multilateralism. It's from 2014, if my memory serves, Foreign Affairs. A uh, great piece. I would encourage our listeners to, to go and grab that. One of the key features of the playbook is its replicability. Autocrats can follow similar patterns of behavior, copy and paste, transplant policies wholesale, and benefit from their peers in evading punitive actions from the international community. In order to counteract this, the Democrats' playbook must also be replicable across a range of scenarios and contexts. So what are the most important lessons learned from the struggle for democracy within Venezuela that could be applied to other closed societies? First is uh, that um, we need to recognize and respond to, not not with a full arsenal of, of sanctions or denunciations or whatever, to even seeming threats. I won't name his name, but a former U.S. ambassador to Venezuela. I met with him shortly. It was before the 2000 so-called mega elections, which were not a mega elections. They were mega fracaso. And which Chavez was railing against the journalists. He says, oh, Chris, you don't understand. You know, watch what he does, not what he says. Well, he did exactly what he said. We knew this. I mean, you know, and I love this idea that somehow he was going to moderate his. He had said during the campaign he was going to fry the opposition's heads in oil. Well, how was he going to moderate that? Is he going to light, lightly saute them in oil? I don't. I didn't know what that exactly meant. And indeed, he did what he said. So we and and, and the, you know, we need to be able to develop. So let's take for example the, the case of in this particular moment, I was talking about threats to freedom of expression. He was denouncing journalists, calling them out by name, maligning them. We see a few presidents doing that now, especially one in Mexico. The international community, the pro democracy community needs to be willing to send, if you will, sort of even ju international journalists to go and speak out on behalf of those journalists to say. This is not acceptable. This is not behavior. We, we sort of, unfortunately, I think post-Chavez, it's been somewhat normalized in the United States and Mexico and other places that politicians get to call out and insult and, and, and indirectly threaten or directly journalists. And I think that should be one of the fundamental warning signs. When they do that, um, it's a red flag. And so we need to be able to prepare to mobilize journalism and respond to that in a way that's, that's very, very powerful. I think that's the first arsenal. You know, the second is, again, being able to elevate these individual cuts, because democracy now dies by a thousand cuts, 
to international four, which is what Biden should have done in the Summit of the Americas, proposed something like that for at least a discussion. I know we'll talk a little bit about the OAS and its its role, but I think you know, I think one of the th- potential reform of the OAS by liberal democracies could be the creation of sort of a security council, because you have the permanent council with every member, but a security council of the OAS that could at least discuss these things. And similarly, the UNHRC and the United, United Nations Human Rights Council should be reformed to be able to provide that form and sh- that should also have a certain standard for its membership that could begin to track these things and call them out and force governments, democratic governments, to respond. What does the relationship look like between democratic states, like the ones that attended the Summit for Democracies, and non-state democracy advocates? What can be done to strengthen some of those ties and start to create something that resembles an international network? The problem is, is also a part of the, the dictator's playbook has been creating fake NGOs. The you know, NGO forums in the UN and other things, and also as well as sort of sham multilateral organizations like the SCO or CELAC. You know, these are intended to distract, divide, dilute the normative importance and the political importance of more serious, if I can say so, multilateral organizations. And the same thing has been true of, of there's Chinese-created NGOs now, Russian-created NGOs, similar from Venezuela. And so the question is, again, is how do you now separate the wheat from the chaff in these scenarios? I do think, you know, there are internationally credible organizations, Human Rights Watch, Reporters Without Borders, Committee to Protect Journalists, all of them need to be part of that club. And maybe even some, it sounds heavy-handed, but some form of sanctioning, I mean, sanctioned in the positive way. Again, sanctions can be used in both ways. In this case, you know, giving them a seal of approval to say these are legitimate organizations that represent, irrespective of ideology. I mean, the, all, both of those organizations call out abuses on both sides of the aisle. They need to be involved. And, and I do think they should have Again, if we're imagining some form of club or some forum or even a, like a G20 of democracies, which shouldn't just be limited to G20, it could be the, hopefully one day it would be a G180. Those organizations should have a seat at the table to be able to report and that they can, you know, it can respond to. And this is not unlike, although as imperfect as it is in the UN Human Rights Council, there's the UPR, the Universal Periodic Review. Not unlike that, but a little more serious and a little more open, a little more direct. And, and with a little more sort of elevation of that dialogue and those debates in international uh, fora. Chris, what is the role of multilateral organizations and regional groupings like the OAS, which you've mentioned already in a few of your responses, and the European Union in elevating the positions of pro-democracy advocates? So the first thing I want to say is you know, th- there's a lot to be very sad and worried about the tragedy of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There's also a bright spot, and I don't want to be naive or Pollyanna about this, but you know we have to recognize that Russia wouldn't have invaded Ukraine if uh, it were a democracy. A lot of the warning signs we saw under Putin, the closing down of civil society, tax on freedom of expression, obviously the killing of uh, political opponents, not to mention the jailing, these were warning signs, again. And it, and it also indicates that these are um, democratic conditions are not sim- simply domestic conditions. These are conditions that spill over and can create international conflict that, that we still don't know the scale and the scope of what may happen in, in Ukraine. What we saw, I think, was very interesting is that the European Union suddenly stood up. I mean, okay, they're, they're giving a pass to Hungary because of concerns of oil. Uh, but, you know, Poland, which had its own issues of uh, sort of elected autocrats, and suddenly Germany is now providing weapons. I-, I take away from this, despite we can talk about India's and China's sort of reluctance to sign on, but I think we see a renewal and attention to 
international liberal organizations that really had, had, had we haven't seen. A lot of people are already saying Macron had already said that it was, you know, a dying club or NATO was a dying club. Now NATO suddenly stands up and looks relevant. No joke, on the BBC, I'm watching BBC one night and they break away to report on the vote of the UN Human Rights Council on how it, whether it's going to vote to exclude and kick out Russia from the UNHRC. I imagine most British viewers at that time were like, what the hell is the UNHRC? And that's understandable. I, I'm, you know, I only know because I follow this stuff. But it suddenly became relevant to people's lives in a way that it hadn't, in a way that suddenly we had seen this dismissal of international liberal institutions. And now they're sort of becoming relevant to people's daily lives. So I think the, you know, the EU and the NATO are not down for the count, and I think we need to leverage that. And even the OAS, we can talk about the abstentions in the OAS, but to, to kick Russia out or exclude Russia in the OAS is not insignificant. So I think you know, the U.S., and this is, we'll talk about the Summit of the Americas, I think the U.S. made a fundamental error in not trying to leverage the Summit of the Americas, even at the risk that some countries wouldn't attend, to precisely this renewal of a liberal international order and commitment, and maybe even involve the EU and European countries in this. Instead, by not owning that narrative, it's sort of allowing the U.S. to other countries, we, and we'll talk about this, sort of to complain about this and use the summit as a way of expressing their opposition to the liberal international order, rather than forcing countries to express their support for it. Thank you for mentioning the importance of regime type. It's something that you don't get in uh, International Relations 101 when you study the realists who just totally ignore regime type as, a, as an important driver of uh, international relations and, and international concerns, and so linking that to, to Russia's invasion. Don't even get me going on one real politique academic, who I won't name, who loves to blame Putin's behavior on everything but Putin himself, including NATO and US and Ukraine, and he's not the only one. But he's certainly the most egregious in this. And you, you wonder, you know, are you so committed to this realpolitik view that you do you believe that Hitler would have behaved the same as, as Churchill? I mean, it, it, it defies history, but it, it, I guess it just makes for a nice conceptual framework. And you just beat everyone over the head because your theories can never be entirely disproven. Well, I mentioned your foreign affairs article, Meaningless Multilateralism, from 2014. And the article I believe we're now uh, discussing was also from the same year. So readers can go and find that article as well, not too far away from, from Chris's article, Meaningless Multilateralism. Let's move on to the subject of Russia now that you've, you've given that segue. Russia's unprovoked and illegal invasion of Ukraine has sharpened the battle lines between democracy and autocracy around the world in exactly the way President Biden described in his campaign. At the same time, the war has been heralded as signifying a new moment in great power competition or in strategic rivalry. Let's talk now about how these developments have impact on the future of democracy movements. Russia is currently facing extreme diplomatic, economic, as well as military pressure with sanctions only beginning to bite. Over time, will Russia's authoritarian allies in Latin America, such as Venezuela and Nicaragua, find themselves more exposed thanks to Russia's growing isolation, or will they receive new support as Russia is forced to double down? First of all, the truth is, is Russia support, economic support, was never uh, really the, the driver. I mean, it, it provided a cover in the case of Venezuela, and it helped bail it out when it was locked out of U.S. capital markets or international capital markets. But it doesn't have a lot to offer. Its economy is smaller than, than Spain's. Um, in all due respect to Spain, a lovely country. But let's not, let's not exaggerate Russia's economic might here and its ability to build client states. Symbolism matters. Uh, it was building clearly the bad boys club of the world. 
Putin at the, uh, as the uh, head frat brother. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really add much. Shirtless head frat brother, I should add, by the way. If everyone's gone to a school, <laughs> frat boys do spend a lot of time with their shirts off. So it, it, it's a fitting uh, uh, metaphor. But it, it couldn't offer much. It, it could offer moral support, symbolic support. And we're already beginning to see, let's take the case of Nicaragua on the eve of this, this podcast interview. We hear news that, that Ortega sent uh, uh, his son to do the bidding and trying to get the sanctions lifted. I think it's positive. I don't think we should lift them. I mean, he's only, a, what, what's, I think the message should be, sorry, too late. The election's already happened. You had your chance. You could have turned the course now. Releasing political prisoners isn't good enough. And it gets to the point, too, which you're asking earlier, Ryan, you know, what should be the conditions? Something that is so ephemeral, and, and I, my, my heart goes out to the political prisoners. I don't mean to use them as bargaining chips. And, and they should be released, period, without sanctions relief. That's, that's the bottom line. The sanctions relief should come, because, you know, we don't, we don't bargain with hostage takers, and those are hostages. The sanctions relief should come when it comes to actually rebuilding institutions or, or pulling back your control over institutions. So, but that indicates th- their willingness to do it now indicates they're a little scared. Russia was never a great partner for them, but now it's, it's a lot. It's not going to do a lot more. And at the same time, Venezuela is struggling itself. So Venezuela isn't writing the check. Um, and it doesn't take a lot of it, much check to actually keep Nicaragua afloat, unfortunately. Um, but Negro- Venezuela isn't doing it either. We see the sanctions again in the case of, of, of Russia that are hurting Venezuela in terms of the SWIFT bank. Um, and also, by the way, Russia's diversion of its oil to China is also going to take away a market for Venezuela in China's purchase of its oil. So there are all sorts of shifts, if you will, in the calculations of these regimes, given um, the bite of these sanctions in a number of ways that I don't even think a lot of people uh, understood or even understand now, which is all the more reason if we, if we, when we change, if we change the sanctions on Venezuela, we should not be doing it for oil. We can talk about it for a number of reasons for doing that. But, you know, we all know oil, oil money is not easily followed, tracked. It's very easily stolen and diverted. Oil should not be the driver of sanctions relief. But I think we're seeing some of the pariah regimes start to sweat a bit. I think that's good. And again, it points to the importance of regime type. You, 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 know, you don't see Brazil sweating as much over Russia because, well, Brazil, for all of its problems with democracy, wasn't dependent on a, a rogue regime, a shirtless frat boy for its uh, uh, patronage. Chris, this has been a wonderful, very wide-ranging discussion, but is there anything that you would like to add, something that you think we didn't cover sufficiently? This will probably date the, the podcast a little bit, but it's the U.S. Summit of the Americas. June 6th through the 10th, I think we have seen a White House right now that is very reactive, doesn't seem to be willing within the region and outside the region to connect dots on U.S. interests and on U.S. principles. And that's a problem. It looks somewhat like a scatter plot right now is you've got, okay, some sanctions over here, corruption, we're against corruption. You know, there are a lot of problems that are going on and a lot of regimes that are getting a pass on things uh, that should be called out. And I realize there are a number of interests in this, but right now we seem to be picking on the weaker ones, Guatemala, El Salvador, with reason. But you know, we, see, we see troubling trends in, in, in Mexico, in, in, in Peru, for no reason of one particular part or the other, a breakdown of the, the, basically the, the institutional system. And I don't see any, any coherent policy. And, and as we now try to summon all of these countries to the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles in June, I don't know what we're offering them. I don't even know what we're offering them materially, because I mean, it shouldn't just be a transactional relationship. But I also don't know what, what we're offering them in terms of principles or, or, or rewards in terms of belonging. The Sum of the Americas, you know, it was started in 1994 to be a club of democracies. 
we don't know why people are going to be want some regimes will be excluded from others. It, 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 there's a certain haphazard, and that allows, if you will, the gadflies to own the narrative. Caricom, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Mexico to a certain extent, that could be very damaging. And I, and I say this as someone who does not blame the U.S. for everything, but I, I, and I say this as a proud American. I do think that we need to, the U.S. needs to define what this is about and then say, you're with us, you're against us, and we'll take our licks. But when we don't do that, it looks like we're simply, we're being the, we're the victim. We're being sort of pushed around by other countries when just because we're, we've agreed to be the host. Dr. Christopher Sabatini, Senior Research Fellow for Latin America, U.S. and the Americas Program at Chatham House and author of the forthcoming book, Human Rights in a Changing World Order. Thanks for joining us today on 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's been a real pleasure. For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.